The Claude 3 model family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude. I'm Karen Feinerman, CEO and co-founder of Metropolitan Capital and a panelist on CNBC's Fast Money. I sort of thought that if you did good work, you would get increasing responsibility. Sometimes you just have to ask for it. It's not necessarily that someone's keeping you down. It might be that they're not really focused on your career path. You got to sort of step up and say, this is what I'd like to do. This is how I'm going to be able to expand my skills and to become more valuable. You've got to be the advocate. You can't wait for someone else to do it. No one has the vested interest that you do in your own career. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Karen Feinerman is the CEO of Metropolitan Capital Advisors and a television personality featured on CNBC's Fast Money. She's also the best-selling author of Feinerman's Rules, in which she offers her expert advice on business, money, and life. She discusses how she rose to the top of the male-driven, cutthroat hedge fund industry and how handling hundreds of millions of dollars, as well as two sets of twins, are all in a day's work. Karen, you tell a story in your book, Feinerman's Rules, about an experience your mom had bringing home a new piece of furniture and how this experience shaped your view of money at an early age. Would you tell us that story? So the story is my mother was very into interior design, and she loved to go out and try to find the exact right thing, and she found it, and she brought it home, and my father said, I don't like it, it's too expensive, take it back. And I could see how crushing that was for her in so many ways, and mainly how disempowering, if that's even a word, it was for her. And because she wasn't the one who made the money, he was the one who got to make the decisions. So what did that teach you? That money is power and that if you want to be powerful and independent, you had to make your own money. In the book you shared, to get pregnant the first time, you went through four grueling rounds of fertility treatments. How did you cope with that? It was very trying. I didn't appreciate how it it just takes over your world. It's not just the going to the clinic every day. There's that. And then there's the hormones, which are somewhat problematic as well. But it's that it, it becomes the entire focus of your life. And you can't think about, oh, maybe we can go on vacation in the spring because you really don't know what your schedule is going to be or whether or not it worked or worse, it didn't work and you're back there just trying again. And it's a difficult time on the marriage as well. I found that it was. And it really just becomes your main focus in a way that's not good. What's your advice for other women going through that same struggle? That... Mostly it works. I think they, and even more so than when I was doing it, they're pretty good at it. And if you can just try to relax, which is not possible, but if you can try to look out a little bit further than just the one month of ovulation that's right in front of you, then you can try to get some peace that for most people it really does work out. And this period that you're in right now is transitory. 
You say women in the workplace still face a double standard. Is there anything women can do about this? I think that, for one thing, it's been disappointing that it hasn't evolved more. I think that having women in higher roles, so the boss that you're concerned about, how does it look if I leave for this game early, is important. That's helpful. And I also think in that is a little bit of guilt women feel doing leaving for the game that men don't. So a little bit we have to let ourselves off the hook, both of those things. And that sort of leads to another point, which is women need to get more comfortable not being the number one parent all the time. I always hear there's judgment from other women sometimes. And I'm wondering if you face any of that and how do you deal with that? Well, the interesting thing about that, which exists, is if you're not the one going to the school drop-off, you don't really have the opportunity for the judgment, because that's a lot of times where it comes in. And I I was proud that I worked, actually. You know, and and then you just kind of have to, you know, I love the quote, what other people say about me is none of my business. You wrote, when your business blew up in 1998, you went from being one of the highest paid women on Wall Street at 33 years old, to your words, being a complete and utter failure. Sounds a little harsh on yourself. Tell us what happened. So what happened was uh, my partner, Jeffrey Schwartz, and I had started our fund in 1992, which was a phenomenal time to start a hedge fund. And we put up great numbers for five and a half years. And we were in a sale we, were, we had agreed to a transaction to sell half of our business. And the month before it was supposed to close, we had a very terrible month. And then the day that the IPO, which was going to happen the same day they were going to buy half of our business, was supposed to happen, they pulled the deal. What I thought would be a fairly big amount of money at a young age turned out to be not only zero because the transaction didn't happen, but the value of the business, more importantly, really started to disintegrate in 1998. We had a horrible, horrible year. We underperformed the market by just an extraordinary amount. Every decision we made was wrong. And so the value of our business, forgetting the sale, the value of our business, nearly collapsed. It was incredibly painful. How did you bounce back from that? I didn't ever fully. It's still with me a little bit, that feeling of failure. I think what you have to do is just start to make very small goals that are achievable. We would try to, all right, we just want to be positive for the month. You know, when you're in the hedge fund business, a big focus on being positive for the month and outperforming whatever your benchmark is. We started with that, but way off in the horizon was, all right, I want us to get back to where we were, assets under management. We really wanted to get there, and it took us, 1999, we had a phenomenal year, but everybody had a phenomenal year. And then in 2000, when the internet bubble burst, and we lost no money in that, we were able to outperform and started to get our mojo back, and it took us a couple more years after that to get back to that that sort of goal benchmark that I had set after the collapse. And that was a good feeling, but it took a long, long time. You say women need to realize they have no other advocate but themselves. How did you learn that? I learned it slowly. I sort of thought that if you did good work that you would be rewarded for it and you would get increasing responsibility. And sometimes you just have to ask for it. It's not necessarily that someone's keeping you down. It might be that they're not really focused on your career path. That may be what it is. And you got to sort of step up and say, this is what I'd like to do. This is how I'm going to be able to expand my skills and to become more valuable. You've got to be the advocate. You can't wait for someone else to do it. No one has the vested interest that you do in your own career. I think some women may think, well, what if I do that? And they say no. 
So I think one of the things women do is overestimate what someone's thinking when they say no, right? You haven't you haven't hurt them by asking. You know, we're oh, I don't know, I don't want to, you know, feel too pushy or something like that. It's kind of ridiculous. Okay, if they say no, you can ask again, either right then or in a different way or a little bit down the road. It doesn't mean a permanent no. You've described yourself as naturally quiet. Now you're paid to talk on TV. So what's your advice for other women who aren't naturally outspoken, who want to get ahead? Fake it. You know, I say we're women. How many things have we faked in our lives? So fake this one. And the more you do it, you sort of grow into it. You get used to it. And you can't hope to be used to it before you start doing it. You have to do it first. And then you'll get used to it. Or it will just get less painful and may stay painful, but it'll be less painful. But I've gotten used to speaking. And public speaking is also something I'm fairly comfortable with. Is it difficult to get a word in edgewise on CNBC sometimes? Yes. So how do you how do you fight for <laughs> that? That was an example of it. Um, how do you fight for that? You know, sometimes I kind of just let it go. And then every once in a while, I'll say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's just focus on this for a second. I think that uh, I feel like it gives a little more weight to the times that I do say, hold on, I really disagree with you. I think the guys are much more comfortable sort of having this back and forth in a maybe somewhat contentious way. I don't love that, but I think uh, it, it's it, good to be done sometimes. It's good to hear different opinions. And I know sometimes people get emotional. I should probably do that more. You said women need to force themselves to stand out. Again, what if they're afraid of making a mistake? Okay, so this notion that you're afraid of making a mistake, so don't do anything, is a riskless strategy is very flawed. It is a very risky strategy. What do you mean by that? That you can't move forward in your career unless you stand out. And You have to sort of be out there to make yourself invaluable, right? So if you don't do that, really how valuable are you? You're somewhat interchangeable. And so one of the things I talk about in my book that I think is really important is it's a story of where I run into a friend of mine. He's a male hedge fund manager, as most hedge fund managers are. And I said, why do you have no women on your team? And he said, here's the reason. It's not that they're not as smart. They're plenty smart. They're probably a lot smarter. But... I have a limited amount of capital to deploy. So when a man comes into my office to pitch an idea for me to invest in, he pounds the table about how much money we can make. And when a woman comes into my office to pitch an idea, she starts with all the things that could go wrong and then what could go right. So we said, look, I'm a sucker for the upside every time. So what do I need the women for? And that was really an epiphany for me because I know women do that and I know why they do it, which is they want to lay out all the risks to the portfolio manager before, it's usually he, pulls the trigger. And by doing that, if something goes wrong, then they can say, well, I told him all the risks and he pulled the trigger anyway. That's a risky strategy, actually, because if you don't get out there and you don't add value in this business, adding value means having positions on the in the portfolio that work. If you don't even give yourself the chance to add value, that's a very risky strategy for your career. Can you give us one tip on how we can make smart risks or take smart risks in our career? It's finding something you love. An area that you love is really important for any career. But then finding one specific area that you're very good at and making yourself useful in that area. For me, that was options trading. It can be, I don't know, how did you get to here? You weren't born doing this, right? So something made you go along this path to get to here where you have particular value add. 
The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed, and Haiku is the fastest and lowest-cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Spend time with Alexa? Then make What's News part of your flash briefing on the Amazon Echo, the Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal. In the book, you talk about how women should use their sexuality to get ahead. What do you mean by that? Well, it's not exactly what it sounds like. I think that, you know, we're in a very different environment right now. I think that women, it's okay to be a woman, to be feminine. I think it's even okay to flirt. You know, you're, it, that's not a crazy scenario. We're so terrified now because of the environment that we're in. But I think it's okay to flirt. And I talk about this example of where can you use your femininity? Where can you use being a woman to your advantage. And one of the things I found was when you are looking at different industries, the number of analysts that look at those industries for retail, a lot of women look at those industries. For other industries, industrials, for example, not a lot of women follow those industries. So I found that interesting. I also like industrials. And so if I could go to a conference and stand out as a woman and go up to CEOs and want to talk to them, and really I am interested in everything they have to say, if I can do that in a way that uses my femininity, good for me. Do you think that's still good advice given the Me Too movement and everything that's happening? I think it's, it's definitely controversial advice. And I think that right now, I think men are so afraid they don't want to put themselves in a position where they could be that could be in question in any way. So that advice might not work right now. It might not work ever in the future. I don't know. Um, I think, though, that the idea that flirting with someone would make someone be a harasser if they were not already inclined to do so doesn't make sense to me. You said women aren't allowed to want to win. What do you mean by that? That there's something that's ungracious or unfeminine about a desire to win. I don't understand why that is. I know it exists. I can feel it. I don't know why it is. I think that, you know, I give the example in my book about the ridiculous Miss USA pageant, right? It's First of all, the whole thing's just so ridiculous, but they get to the final part of the show where there's the winner and the runner-up. You don't know who's going to win yet. And they announce the runner-up. And she has to pretend to be all happy for the winner. And, you know, oh, better you than me. It's ridiculous. I mean, she's put her heart and soul in this contest. Okay, I never would have done that anyway if I were she, but she did. And then to have to be so graciously thrilled for the winner, I find that kind of sickening, actually. You would never see, you know, when you think of the the male equivalent, the testosterone-filled Super Bowl, right? Tom Brady, I don't think, was very happy happy for Nick Foles. He didn't graciously say, oh, better you than me. He would never do that. So why do we have to, why do we have to do that? Why is it bad to want to win? Doesn't mean be, you know, sort of a cocky and egotistical winner, but it means it's okay It's want to want to win. In the book, you write about the importance of mentoring and that you said if you want 
to have a family or you have a family, women shouldn't choose an unmarried middle-aged woman as a mentor. How come? I think the best mentor for women is usually a man with daughters, right? So when I think about the mentoring role, think about it more for younger women. And if you're in a career path, if you're in a career that's very heavily male-dominated, First of all, there's just math. When you're thinking about mentors, who there's just more men. But I think a man with a woman with a daughter has a different view on young women coming up in their careers. You said you learned there's a tremendous freedom in not spending money. Please explain. So not spending money gets you on the path to having money, right? It clearly feeds into that. And the more money you have, the more comfortable you are, you realize what a luxury it is to not have to worry about money. It's a much greater luxury than having things that are luxurious. Luxury items don't compare to the luxury of not needing to worry about money. So how do you live that out in your own life? You know, I talk, we have a minivan. Uh, we actually have two minivans, which is ridiculous, you know, one summer house and one in the city. And, you know, it's a, it's a, you never worry about it. I don't care what happens to it. I really don't care. So that's, that's a nice thing. And it's also a message to the kids, right? I want them to know that things cost money. I want them to know that to save money is a good thing in life. I want them to have that, that understanding of having extra money is a luxury. You said women too often relinquish their financial powers. What do you mean by that? So a lot of women, smart women who work or maybe even work in finance, a lot of times the partner, if the husband, relinqu- they relinquish that power to the man. They say, oh, he deals with the finances. And maybe that doesn't necessarily mean the checkbook and paying the bills, but it means being in charge of the savings and the investing and the big decisions like buying a house. And I think turning over that power is a huge mistake. How come? Because, one, you might not know what's going on. Two, there's no reason to think that the husband is necessarily that much better at it than the wife, right? So that's a really important one. And you you just got to know this stuff because you may end up divorced or widowed and need to be in charge. And right at the time that your husband dies is a very bad time to try to learn about finances. What advice do you have for women who say, I know I should learn, but it's boring? Uh, you got to do it anyway. It's like flossing your teeth, you know, or brushing your teeth. You got to do it anyway. And it's boring might be might be code for it's scary, right? It doesn't necessarily need to be boring. It's your money. What happens to it shouldn't bore you. But let's even say it does. It's your responsibility to be aware of it and to focus on it. So what's your best advice for women who just want to get started with investing? Just get started. That's it. Okay, you've made the decision to do it. There's a lot of great ways that you can do that now. You don't need to be a stock picker. In fact, it's probably better off that you're not a stock picker. And there's a lot of tools out there to help. Uh, One thing that I think is really interesting is robo-advising, and you can do it for a very, very small fee. Just some full disclosure, I am an investor in Elevest, and I know you know Sally Krawcheck. I'm a huge fan of Sally's. And I think that, you know, what she's trying to do is have women get over the hurdle of just getting started. Once you do it, once you flex that muscle, you're going to want to do it over and over and over again.
you're a long-term investor. What do you think is in store for the stock market, say, in the next two years? Well, it's interesting. Just you know, earlier today when I was thinking about this, and then by the time I got to the studio here, I think the market moved about 500 points. Now, the day of the crash in 1987, I believe, was 508 points. So clear, different scale of movement, but we're in a pretty volatile time right now. However, I do think that the economy is improving, that uh, the tax bill, regardless of one's politics, is just mathematically a big positive for stocks. Uh, so I think that's sort of an underpinning of value that gives some support. I think that the biggest risk right now is probably inflation getting out of control and the Fed needing to tighten. But all that having been said, I don't think I could pick a period in my entire career that was without risk. So you have to be invested in the market if you want market returns over time, which I do. You have to be invested. You can't worry about, am I going to pick the exact right time? You're not. You're just not going to pick the exact right time. So what you can do about that is just invest an amount every month. It's called dollar cost averaging. And the market goes up, you'll invest You'll invest the same dollar amount. It'll buy you less. But then if the market goes down, that same dollar amount will buy you more. You can't worry about it. I'm long. I've been long stocks since 1987. And I will be long stocks for as long as I can own anything. Last question. Do you think by the time your children are in their 20s, will we see more women on Wall Street like you? You know, if you had asked me that when I first came to Wall Street, I would have said, of course. It's not as emphatic, of course, but it is, uh, It is, I believe, yes, because I think it can be a great career path for women. Hope you're right. Time now for your secrets. I'm Karen Feinerman, and my money secret is it's okay to want to make money. Be sure to tune in every week for all new episodes featuring SoulCycle CEO Melanie Whalen, hair mogul Gail Federici, and best-selling author Linda Fairstein. We'll hear expert insight from women industry leaders about their road to a successful career and their secrets to financial empowerment. Find us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite audio provider and tune in every week for all new episodes of the Wall Street Journal's Secrets of Wealthy Women podcast. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com or on Twitter. Use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.